Right. <laughs> we appreciate all the people who do the things in the background, keep us running. Y'all had a good lunch? <clears throat> so let me just tell you really quick. Here's a, I told you this has got to be a sermon illustration. It has nothing whatsoever to do with my lesson, but it happened at lunch, so it was fun, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, we went to the In-N-Out Burger, which I love, and we do not have West Palm Beach floor, so that was fun. Um, but there was a young man on the cash register who was getting trained. It's always fun watching somebody learning how to do something. He had a name tag. His name was Jesus. His trainer's name was Mary. <laughs> 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 there you go. Um, we're going to talk about Psalm 19. And here's what's really fun about those two psalms that, that I got uh, was privileged to be able to, to study. Um, psalm 18, David spends uh, telling us about the night sky, the stars, the sun and the moon, and how the night sky really uh, points us to the Lord. Um, in Psalm 19, he talks about the sun. Um, and what's really cool is he says that uh, uh, the, the, it's almost like he's saying that the skies are a story, right? The sun tells a story. Um, it's it's the, the sky, the sun is silent, but the circuit of the sun in all its glory preaches the existence of God. But our God is not silent. And what's really cool about this, this psalm is um, that... The sky, he, t- he divides it into basically three sections, and we're going to hit three sections. Uh, the first section tells us how the sun and the sky tell us are, are silent preachers preaching the existence of God. But the second part of the psalm, David says, but we're so blessed because God is not silent. He gives us his word. to tell. He, 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 re- he has revealed himself to us in his words. And then the final part of the psalm, he's going to say, so what does that mean for us? It demands a response, um, and we're going to talk about exactly what that response is. So we're going to jump right in. <clears throat> And we're going to talk about the persuasion of creation. You think about that? I mean, we talked a lot about creation in the first hour that I was with you. Um, but does it persuade us? I, I, was, I, I know I keep telling you all about how cool our trip to Yellowstone was. Um, it, the, the skies, there was just so much drama in the skies. And it, it's, hard, it's hard to stand in front of those and not be amazed at our God. But you know what David said to me in the car? He said, honey, you don't need to keep using Yellowstone as an example. He said, he said how many people do you know stop their cars, or maybe don't stop their cars, uh, when there's a gorgeous sunset and they're driving home from work and they take a picture of it with their phone and then throw it up on Facebook because like everybody else in town hadn't seen that same sky, right? Uh-huh. Are we not persuaded by the beauty in what we see, particularly in the skies? Um, so we're going to talk just for a couple of minutes about what we see in that in that persuasion. Um, Verses 1 through 6, David really tells us that the skies are a speechless sermon. Isn't that a cool way to think about it? Um, the, uh, the ancient Greeks were, were, were too amazed at the things that they saw in the sky. And, and, and you can tell that the, the sun goes, it's, it, it, does, it, do, it, it makes a circuit, right? And they made up false stories to explain for themselves what, what, the, what, what the sun was, right? Apollo, the sun god. Um, we know the truth of, of our Lord who created this for us. Um, but, but David says in verse 1 that the skies really are a speechless sermon, preaching to us without words. Um, and Paul echoes this, doesn't he? And we talked about this in the first hour in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 where Paul tells us that, that when we are faced with the power of this creation, with the beauty of this creation, with them, just 
just the monumental magnitude of what God has created for us. Paul says, we are without excuse if after having viewed all of that, we can still stand and say, there's no God. We have no excuse. God clearly exists. We have to accept that. We have to believe that just by just based on the evidence that we see. Um, but more than that, David says that the skies are a never-ending testimony. What do I mean by that? And verse two tells us that um, he said he uses the words day unto day, like continuing on every day. The sun does the same thing, doesn't it? Mark thirteen and thirty. Mark thirteen and thirty-one says that. Um, that heaven and earth will pass away, but God's words will not. Think about that. The sun goes every day, every day, every day. Someday it's going to stop. But his words don't. And David's getting ready to reinforce that, that concept for us in just a couple of minutes. Just think about that, though. Day unto day, it utters speech. Every day, the sun tells a story. And the story that it tells is, God made me, and he put me here for you, for your benefit. A speechless sermon, a never-ending story. Um, The creation is a wordless book. And it seems like a lot of these are saying the same things. But think about what what David says. He says, um, Warren Wearsby says that this is a language that everybody understands. Everybody on the whole world knows what the sun is, right? Every language, every country, every nation, every culture understands the sun comes up in the morning and it goes down in the evening. And the next morning, if we're all still here, it's going to come up in the morning and it's going to go down in the evening. But you know what? It never, ever looks the same twice. Isn't that amazing? We were we 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 got we got the crack of the, before the crack of dawn every day that we were in Yellowstone because we wanted to be in a different place to see it come up. Um, the very first morning, the one thing that I wanted to see, the one thing that I wanted to see was the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone because I'm so into waterfalls, and I wanted to be there when the sun at sunrise so that I could get long exposure pictures of the upper falls, right, as the sun was coming up over the canyon. Uh, turns out the sun comes up on the opposite side. So if you're, if you're taking a picture of the waterfalls, the sun's coming up behind you over the river, and it's painting the sky over there with really faint pinks and purples and oranges. It's just stunning. And the next day, we were hunting wildlife. It's, the wildlife's everywhere up there. Um, it's it's really funny because, like in the last, in the last lesson, we talked about how. Uh, well, we're actually we're going to talk in a little bit about uh, domi- dominion over beasts of the field. And beasts of the field to me always meant like horses and cows, and that means bison. <laughs> it's so cool. But we were hunting wildlife, and so we saw the sun come up over the meadows and up over the mountains, over in in, in the distance, and it was a completely different story than it had been the day before. But the story had the same moral. And the same moral, the moral of that story is God made me. And he made me for you. He made me for you. And he made me for, he made the son for all of the people who don't even acknowledge him. And yet, those people, their faces are warmed by the same light, the same heat that we have, right? The son is a never-ending story a wordless book that tells the story of God and His creation. The sky and the sun are silent evangelists for God. Silent 
evangelists, preachers. The son is preaching without words. The, the, in 19 verse 1, the words, you know, we say the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, the New American Standard says the heavens are declaring, constantly telling the story that God is here. Um, Amos chapter 5 and verse 8 says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and he turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. The heavens, the firmament, and the sun serve as silent preachers proclaiming the existence of our God. It's so hard for us to, even today on a cloudy day, we can look up and see the mountains rising up and you see all that mist up on top of the mountains. Those skies are preaching to us. To people, they, sometimes, sometimes the creation is the very first sermon a non-believer will ever hear, right? And, and even if they don't bow before the Creator who made them, it's hard. To, you, you can't look up at some of these things and not acknowledge that there is something higher than we are. And that is what David is telling us. Silent evangelists for God. And then finally, these skies, this sun, this gift, it's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's not just for you. David says these are gifts to all people. Um, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, what are we told? That the sun rises and sets on the just and the unjust, right? The good and the evil. Um, God created the earth for everyone to enjoy, even the people who hate him, even the people who refuse to acknowledge him, even the people who have not bowed their knee before him. But we have. Do we really and truly appreciate the story that he's telling us through this great creation that he has made? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Listen to this. He's not willing that any should perish. Do you see the parallel in the creation that God has made? And it's for everyone. And the salvation that God has presented, that is for everyone. The creation that He has made, those skies, that sun, that story He is telling, is pointing us toward a bigger picture. It's pointing us toward a bigger message. And sometimes, that's the first message that people ever see. Wow! That's really something. I wonder where that came from. Instilled within us as humans is that searching, that looking, that reaching for something higher, right? And that's why the ancient Greeks made idols. When Paul came into town in Athens and he was like, wow, this is a hot mess. Oh, there's the sermon illustration I need. The unknown God, right? Why did they have all of those idols? They had them. Because they recognized that there was something bigger than they were, something higher than they were, something more important than they were, and it was out there showing them the story. They were just missing the bigger picture. So what's the bigger picture? Here's the bigger picture. Not only does David talk to us about the persuasion of creation, he gets down into the second section, and starting in verse 7 and going through verse 11, he talks to us about the prophet of Revelation. Um, do we think about that, the, 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 the revelation of God as being profitable to us? 
I'm not sure that we spend enough time being grateful and thankful for the fact that God has laid out for us specifically and exactly and with detail exactly what he wants us to do in order to please him. Do you ever have, maybe not you, but do you know someone who, have have you had a mom who it was hard to please? Like perhaps a teacher where nothing you did was what they wanted? Um, I I had a, a manager one time, a boss who would get, tell me, he would say, this is what I want. And I would go and do that. And he would say, this is not what I wanted. And I was like, this is what you said you wanted. <laughs> so, so if that's not what you wanted, perhaps we needed some more detail in the telling, right? God tells us exactly what we need to do. We don't have to hope that we get a holy hunch in the shower in the morning and know what we're supposed to do to please God. We don't have to worry that there's an additional revelation coming. We don't have to be concerned that we don't know what to do in order to achieve salvation, in order to receive God's gifts. Why don't we have to worry about any of those things? Because He's revealed it to us. He has given us His revelation. And y'all, aside from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this is the very best gift that God could have given us. He could have just sat up there in heaven as a dictator God and thought, yeah, go please me. Let's see what you come up with. But he didn't because it was a benevolent God and he's a loving God and he's a caring God and he's concerned for us and he wants a relationship with us so badly that he told us what to do to get into that relationship. He told us what to do. He has given us his revelation. So David gives us some descriptions of the word of God and I want us to just really quickly like step through some of these. Um, he talks first about the law of the Lord uh, in verse 7. And, and Romans 7 and verse 12 talks to about the law being holy and the commandment being holy and righteous and good. This word, law, it's, you, you'll probably recognize the Hebrew word Torah, right? The law, David says, is perfect. Um, and it converts the soul. You know that the New Testament talks about how the law is perfect? That we think a lot about in the New Testament about the law being not good enough. The law wasn't good enough. So, and so, so Jesus came and, and, and nailed the law to the cross. But you know what this verse says? The law was perfect as a tutor to bring us to Christ. Your Old Testament is chock full of stories. I have a girlfriend who doesn't like for me to use the word stories when we talk about things in the Bible. She says, those aren't stories, they really happen. And I said, well, they are true stories, (laughs) right? We tell stories about things that happen in our family all the time. The Old Testament, your Old Testament, is a great, great resource. Why is it there? For our learning, is it not? It was a perfect tutor to bring us to Christ. The law let us know why we needed Christ so much. The law is perfect, and it, and, and it, it converts the soul. Um, the testimony of the Lord, verse 7. Um, this is a word, the testimony. It, this, is, this is the word that was used to describe the stone tablets, right? The, so you, if you want to mark that in your Bible underneath the word testimony, this is the word that they use a lot in the Old Testament to describe the stone tablets that Moses brought down. Um, James chapter 3 and verse 17 says that the wisdom that we get from God is pure. David says that God's testimony is sure and it, uh, and it makes the wise from the simple. It makes us wise. Do you want to be wise? I do. I don't like being 
uneducated about things. I don't like feeling not smart, right? Do we want to be wise? Why aren't we studying more? David says that the testimony of God makes us wise. James says that the wisdom of God is pure. The wisdom from above. And this is what David says that God has given to us. The... Um, <clears throat> The uh, statutes of the Lord, verse 8, are right and rejoice the heart. Doesn't Matthew tell us that those that we are blessed if we hunger and thirst for righteousness? The, testament, the statutes of the Lord are right. Um, think about this. Do we like rules? Kids don't like rules, do they? We want to say, no, Mom, we want to go do this because everybody else is doing it. Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Why do we have rules? God tells us in Deuteronomy why he gives us rules, right? Why we have laws, why we have statutes. Because he doesn't want us to have fun, because he doesn't want us to do things, because he doesn't want us to have friends in the world. He says he has given us his laws, he has given us his statutes for your good always. Always. His statutes keep us in a relationship with him. And he has revealed these to us. And this is a gift, David says. The statutes of the Lord rejoice our hearts. The commandment of the Lord. And it's so much, you know, it's almost kind of this verse, this chapter, Psalm 19, actually reminded me a lot of Psalm 119. Y'all been through, y'all done that exercise in Psalm 119? where you go through an underline in all of the verses, the different words where it talks about the word of the Lord. And a lot of times we think about these as synonyms, right? Oh, that's just another word for, for the word. Oh, that's just another word for the Bible. Oh, that's just another word. But I love how David digs down into these, and he gives us not just definitions for each of these words, but he gives us a reaction to it, right? The, 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 the statutes are right. The, um, the testimonies make us wise. Um, the commandment, he says, of the Lord is, I, I, I actually really, really love this one. The commandment is pure and it light, it enlightens the eyes. Anybody else have trouble seeing? <laughs> Dave and I, we had to stop at the Walgreens and buy another pair of glasses. I have so many pairs of readers all over the house because I, I, I keep losing them. I broke a pair in Yellowstone. Or, no, I, I lost a pair at the Gibbons Waterfall and we got in the car and I was trying to look at the back of the camera to see what I had taken and Dave was like, where's your glasses? And I was like, I think I left them by the waterfall. And he said, do we need to go back? And I said, no, because I packed an extra pair. Because <laughs> can't see any do we want to see? Do we want to have our eyes enlightened? David says, the commandments of the Lord enlighten our eyes. What on earth does that mean? We would not know we were wrong if it weren't for the law, right? And we would just be happily skipping along into sin and into error and into not relationship with God. He gives us the law to teach us to open our eyes to see where we need to be, to see where we need to improve, to see what we need to fix, to see how we can be better. The commandment of the Lord enlightens our eyes. And, and, and don't we see that in the New Testament as well? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. It's, it's good for teaching us how to get right, how to be right, how to stay right, how to do right, how to know what is right. And again from Psalm 119, but what is what is what does Psalm one nineteen tell us that the word of God is? It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. You get up in the middle of the night because you gotta go. Because you gotta go. <laughs> you gotta go. Like, do, do, do you stumble? 
I do. I we need. You get, I'm grown up, and I need a night light because I'll fall over in the night if I don't know where I'm going. That's what the word of the Lord is. That's what His commandments are. They show us where to go. They bright. They light our way. Aren't we blessed to have these? Like we think a lot that we think a lot of, of about rules in a negative way, uh, and that probably stems from childhood where we want to run like crazy people, and our moms are always telling us to sit down and be quiet. Right? Um, the front pew of the church building where I grew up was was reserved after church for those children who had misbehaved or were caught running in church or who had committed some other sort of infraction. It was, in fact, the Tracy Pew. <laughs> so, you know, once I got caught running, and it was a village. You know they say that it, it takes a village to raise a child. Really what it takes is a church. And everybody in the whole church felt, you know, empowered back in those days to discipline whosoever child they happened to be right next to. Um, that, was a, that was something we subscribed to. Uh, lots of folks in the church down in West Palm Beach that my children thought were actually related to them that they were not. Um, Uncle Grandpa Joe, Grandma Marion, Uncle Uncle Gary, Aunt Jackie, Aunt Kathy. You know, there were lots of people who could discipline my children if I wasn't right there with court. Now, I, I said all of that to say that 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 we think about rules like discipline, like it's not enjoyable. We think about the law as something to tell us you can't do that. You can't have that. We don't want to, you're not supposed to have that or do that. Or we think about it in a negative way. But it's really not. It's boundaries so that we don't get out into the things that will hurt us, so that we don't get out into the things that will keep us off the path of serving God. Do you give your children rules because you want to be a dictator and you don't want them to have good things? Do you give them rules because you love them? You want them to grow up right. You want them to grow up healthy. You want them to grow up careful. God loves you. He wants you to grow up right. He wants you to grow up healthy. He wants you to grow up careful. He wants you to come home to Him. That's what His commandments do for us. They are not burdensome. David says that the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. This word actually brings to mind in in the original language to stand firm, to stand up for. So we think about fear and we think about being scared or sometimes we would think of respect, right? We would would sometimes use the word respect in in conjunction with this word. But the, the, the Hebrew language really tells us this word means standing up for God, the fear of the Lord. When I am standing up for God, I'm standing in the gap, right? I am standing up and saying, I know this is what society is saying is cool and good and popular right now. And wow, is there a lot that our society is trying to convince us about right now. And so many of us are super careful not to stand up. And we don't want to jump in and say that's all right, but we just be real quiet. Do we turtle a lot? Right? Are we? How many of our congregations are preaching about what our children are being told? is right with regard to gender, with regard to sexuality. You know, like are we, David preached a sermon, hmm, it's been a couple years now. Um, He preached a very hard-hitting sermon about things that our children are being told about sexuality. 
things that our children are being told about relationships, things that our children are being told about gender. And he and, and it was a hard-hitting sermon and it, and, and it was needed. And I told him after church, I said, Honey, you know, you can preach in sermons like that. A couple of years from now, you're going to be preaching them from a jail cell because it's going to be considered hate speech. And we laugh. But that's where we're headed. And David said, That'll be okay, honey. You can bring me a cake. <laughs> That's where we're headed. But are we standing up and saying those things? Our children are being told in their classes at school that they need to be allies of all of these things that they're being told. That, that, that if, if their friends are into something that we would not agree with because of Scripture, but they need to still stand up next to their friends and be an ally. Ladies, we are not allies of sin. We are not. And our children need to know that. Our children need to know that we stand up for what God has taught, that we fear the Lord. And when we stand for God, David says, He is with us. We have a lot of opportunities right now in our society to stand up for our God. But it's, it is increasingly difficult to do that, is it not? Why? Because everything that we say is on Facebook. Somebody can go back through six years of, of what I have said on Facebook to see if I said anything, you know, inappropriate. I try really hard not to. But I'm not sure that we all are standing up. I think we're all being quiet a lot and not agreeing. I don't know that we're all being really careful to disagree. And we can disagree carefully. Right? We can disagree with the things that, that, that we are being told in society and the things that we that our children are learning. I think we can disagree with these with love. We we don't hate sinners, but we cannot, we cannot allow our children to think that sin is ever okay. The number of teenagers in our home congregation who have left because they think, oh, the church is not nice to people who just want to love whoever they want to love. Are we crafting our message in such a way that our children understand that the fear of the Lord, that standing for the Lord is what is right? And that when we stand for Him, He holds us up. These are important lessons that David teaches us. And finally, the judgments of the Lord. Are, uh, are true and righteous altogether. And you know what? His words are the basis of his judgments. Um, we're all going to stand someday and be judged. And that's a scary thought. But not for Christians, is it? Why? Because all the way back up at the top of this slide, we talked about the profit of this revelation. Why this revelation is profitable to us. Because we know what his words are. And so his judgments for us are true and are righteous because I can measure myself against his words and know that when I reach judgment, I will be found not wanting. Right? James talks about a mirror. Um, you know, being hearers of the word and not doers only. And if you get down in that chapter, he talks about the, the word, the Bible. We'll use the word Bible because that's where we have his words now, right? He talks about the Bible being a mirror. And so I hold the Bible up like a mirror and I look at myself to see, do I match that? Do you sometimes roll up out of bed and look in the mirror and think, whew, that 
that's a hot mess. I better do something about that. Well, do we do something about it or do we turn around and walk away and stay in our PJs all day long and not do anything about it? We would never do that, right? We would not come here to the lectureship without having taken care of it. We would brush our hair, we would put on our makeup and take care of our appearance. Why? Because we want to match, we want the mirror to match our inner thought of what we ought to look like. And yet so many times we hold ourselves up to the mirror of God's Word, to His judgments. If I hit the button. To his judgments, and we say, Wow, that doesn't match. But we walk away and we never make the changes. David says that his revelation is a prophet to us, that his words are the basis of his judgment, and that we have the opportunity to view ourselves against those words and fix it here while we have the opportunity to do that on earth, so that when we reach judgment, the prophet of that revelation has given us the opportunity to match, to be what he wants us to be. And that's what his laws are. He's given us his word as a gift so that we know what to do. Finally, the last section of this, of this psalm that David gives us is he says this. You know, we look at the sky and it's a silent preacher for God. And we look at the revelation and it's not silent. It is very specific. It is lessons that he has given to us. Well, then what does that mean for me? That's great. We got a gorgeous creation and we're, we're, we're glad God gave us that. This is daunting. God gave us his word that we need to study to know what to do with. But now what am I supposed to do with it? David says that you're going to have three very specific responses to this revelation. First, he's going to say, cleanse me, O God. David says that a reasonable, rational, honest person who stands before God's creation and who looks into God's word as his revelation is going to recognize that he's not right. He's going to recognize that there's space for improvement. Isaiah stood before God in in the vision and, and he said, I am undone. I am sinful. I am not right. And don't we all? Should we not all, when standing before the great God of heaven, fall down on our knees like, like Peter did when he recognized that Jesus was Jesus? And he fell down on his knees and he said, Depart from me, Lord. Why? For I am a sinful man. David says the very first thing that a reasonable, rational, honest person is going to do when faced with God's revelation is recognize, I need God to cleanse me. I need God to make me clean. Isn't that what repentance is? Right? A lot of times we think about repentance as being a step that new Christians have to make on their way to the water. Right? We know those steps. We believe, repent, confess, right? There it is, right there in the middle. We've got to repent. A lot of times we feel like we preach about repentance. That's a check mark that you got to do on your way to the baptismal pool, right? So many times that we see the word repent in the New Testament, is that written to non-Christians? It is not, girls. It is written in epistles to people who are already Christians. Why does somebody who's already a Christian need to repent? Well, because we're going to mess up all the time. Constantly. We're constantly messing up. Even the very best of us is going to do things that we know we should not do. And so what do we got to do when we do those things? David says, cleanse me, O Lord. Right? And, and, and doesn't First John promise us that when we confess those sins and we stop doing those things and we turn around and we walk the right way, what does the Bible tell us? He is faithful and just to cleanse us 
David recognized that the first thing that we need to do when we are faced with his creation and his revelation is to ask for cleansing. But there's more. Because secondly, he says, keep me from sin. Right? Isn't that what we just talked about? So what does he say exactly? He says, I love this. Um, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous. Isn't that an interesting word? Doesn't it put you in the mind of a little bit of arrogance? Who am I to stand before the God of heaven and commit sin? I think so many times that we don't consider the God of heaven being right here with us. If we did, we would sin a whole lot less, wouldn't we? Um, if, If Jesus was actually sitting next to you in bodily form, right next to you in the pew, would you be paying better attention? Maybe. But what? What does the Bible tell us? He is in the midst of us. And I think... I think that that David's word presumptuous there is a really spot-on description of what's going on in our heads when we sin. Keep me back from presumptuous sin, David says, because he recognizes that even once we've been cleansed, that we're stubborn creatures, and a lot of times we're just going to turn right around and go right back to the stuff that we were doing before and get ourselves into trouble again, right? David prays, God... Please help me. Uh, Jesus said the same thing in his model prayer, didn't he? Lead us not into temptation. Wasn't Jesus himself tempted? What did he do to combat temptation? What did he do to shield himself from temptation? He quoted scripture. Doesn't that take us just back to the central section of this psalm again? What do we need to do in order to shield ourselves from the temptation to sin? We need to go right back to the law, to the testimony, to the statutes, to the fear of God. We need to keep ourselves rooted in His Word. There are so many ways that we could do that, girls, and y'all are doing a great one today. Like We go to events like this once a year um, and fill ourselves up in the Word, but, but we need more than that. The, the, the Bible writing, that, that has been such a huge change and, and, and boost and encouragement and edification and education to my personal Bible study. My husband David wrote a book that, um, at the end of last year uh, called A Chapter a Day that our congregation is using as a theme for this year. And it is one chapter of the New Testament every single day, five days a week, and then two days for marking your Bible and for meditation and prayer and study. And it's great. It's a ways for families to do it together. You can do it as a personal Bible study. And I have found it to be... I am learning things about verses that I have been reading for my entire life, almost 50 years, and I'm learning something new every day. If you aren't learning something new out of your Bible every single day, you're not reading it hard enough. You're not spending enough time in it. Because there's something brand new to teach you every single day. We need to be women in His Word, diving into His Scriptures every single day in some way. Maybe it's just one verse. Maybe you just spend, maybe maybe all you can do is one verse today. If you, uh, you can write it down on, an, maybe this is your verse of the day, or even verse of the week. You write it down on an index card and keep it right there next to, next to the speed limit in your car. Anybody else need something there? <laughs> you know, and maybe you spend one verse until you have memorized that verse and you have engraved it on your heart. 
You need to move on to the next one. Maybe it's reading a new ladies' class book. Maybe it's, it's choosing a, a scripture reading program. You know, whatever it is that speaks to the way that you learn and study, do that. Maybe you've got to experiment a while to find out which is your way, right? I, there were some ways that were far easier for me to study and meditate than others. And here's the last thing I'm going to tell you about this, keeping yourself um, in his word. And keeping ourselves in his word will keep us from presumptuous sin. It's got to be more than reading, okay? You can read something, and we read, you know, like when I was a little kid, I read every Nancy Drew novel that was ever, ever written, right? And I devoured them. When I was done with them, I knew that story and I was done and I put it away. We should not read our Bibles like it's a storybook. We can, and that's a great way to interact with our children. But the Bible is so much more than just something to read. We need to think about it. We need to study it. We need to dig down deep into it. We need to meditate on it. Sit and think. What did that mean? What did it mean to David? What did it mean to the people that David read it to? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to the people that I'm trying to teach it to? We need to be women in his word. And then finally, the very last thing that David tells us is that we need to look up to God and we need to say, let me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I need to let my words be his. It's not enough for me to take his word in. I need to turn those words around and those need to be the words that I speak. Right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Love this one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then this. Do not be conformed to this world. But what? Be transformed. That's David begging God to transform him. Dear Father, cleanse me. Keep me from sinning. And let me make your words mine. Let his words be yours. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Imitate God as dear children. Let his words be mine. Let my words be his. And then here's what I want you to think about. David tells us about two sermons in this psalm. God's wonder, the skies above us, the creation that he has made. God's wonder and God's words. A gift to us from the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe loves you so much that he wrote his words down so that you would know him. You would know what he wants you to do. You would know how to get to him. Right? What's my response to God's wonder and God's words? My response is repentance. I've got to change who I am. And then my response is to make his words mine, to obey him, to be what he wants me to be, to be a woman in his word. Thank you so very much for your great attention. I have enjoyed so very thoroughly being with you, and I appreciate you all so very much. Thank you.